Welcome back to Conflicted. Thomas Small here with you alongside my ever-present co-host, Eamon Dean. Hello, everyone. Now, this is the second part of our exploration into the thrilling life of one of the most significant historical antecedents to modern-day Salafi jihadists, Ibn Taymiyyah. Like Middle Easterners today, Ibn Taymiyyah lived in a time of change, upheaval, and chaos, Mongols invading from the outside, and from within, heretics and charlatans preying on the faithful. And into the rescue, here comes Martin Luther, who will purify, oh sorry, Ibn Taymiyyah, who will purify Islam <laughs> from, you know, all the polluted evil. Yeah, it's true. Ibn Taymiyyah, it's a sort of, he's a sort of Protestant and Muslim, a Muslim Protestant, <laughs> like so many Salafists, I think. Last time we left Ibn Taymiyyah with yet another Mongol invasion poised to begin. So without further ado, let's get right back into it. Right, Amen. So one of Ibn Taymiyyah's many disciples, a man called a Wahhabi, uh, someone who in the end turned against the master. He decided that Ibn Taymiyyah was a bit too extreme for his liking. He wrote this, and I like it. Quote, to one group of scholars, Ibn Taymiyyah was a devil, a liar, and an unbeliever. To other learned and esteemed men, he was an excellent and skilled innovator. To yet others, he was a dark and sinister figure. And yet to the great majority of his followers, he was the guardian of the religion, the bearer of the banner of Islam, and the protector of the prophetic sunnah. I think that's quite succinct. It shows you uh, how controversial Ibn Taymiyyah was even in his own day. Some thought he was the devil. Some thought he was the great protector of the religion. Well, I mean, it shows you, you can't please all the people all the time. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and I don't think, you know, Ibn Taymiyyah was a crowd pleaser or people's pleaser. The man spoke his mind and his mind was sharp, as was his tongue, as was his pen for that matter. And this is why... He used to earn as many enemies as friends. While some people might say his mind was in the right place, his heart wasn't. As you say, he may not have set out to please the people, but he certainly became adept at whipping up the masses uh, into something like a radical frenzy. The mature Ibn Taymiyyah, in the full force of his power as a rhetorician, as a thinker, as a writer, has been described as animated by a zeal against irreligion. Zeal against irreligion. I think that's a great way of describing Ibn Taymiyyah at this phase of his life, when he is confident, when he is absolutely determined to resist the Mongol onslaught from without and to purge wickedness, heresy, innovation from within. He was a formidable figure, wouldn't you say, Amen? He was a formidable figure because he was a genius. And no matter what we think about him, he was a genius. And I suspect he was either ASD or OCD. Like, I mean, in a way, like, you know, there was something there about him that could be more of a savant. The man was a genius in the sense that he was able to master many arts apart from theology, mathematics, philosophy, as well as astronomy. You know, many listeners would be amazed by the fact that in his book, Risal al Arshiyah, he in fact was able to calculate the timings of the next eclipses of the sun and the moon to prove a point that not only that the earth is uh, round and it actually like in you know, orbit the sun and the moon is orbiting the earth in order to prove that this is how the sun and the moon eclipses take place. So you can see his brilliance, but unfortunately brilliance wasted on endless battles that were pointless. We're going to cover lots of those battles in this episode. You call him a genius. A genius he certainly was. Often, you know, Ibn Taymiyyah's writings seem like they contradict uh, each other or that they can be, they can somehow come across as quite incoherent. Ibn Taymiyyah wasn't a great systematic thinker. He was a responsive, instinctive, reactionary thinker. Very brilliant, quick to uh, summon arguments in favor of whatever he was advocating. Uh, but for that reason, Nowadays, people can cherry pick quite easily bits and pieces from Ibn Taymiyyah's writings to justify their own you know, beliefs, because Ibn Taymiyyah in a way can be used to justify anything, because he was such a voluminous, kind of contradictory, genius mind. Does that make sense, Eamon? He was, Thomas. Ibn Taymiyyah's genius and the contradictions that are contained within this genius, you know, are 
not surprising because basically Ibn Taymiyyah mastered the art of writing essays. Now, because these essays span his life, his adult life, and span many different political and military upheavals that were taking place, they are bound to contain a lot of contradictions. Well, genius minds like Ibn Taymiyyah's, like yours, Eamon, maybe like mine, you know, we, we, we often contradict each other. We get so excited, we just start spewing forth whatever comes to our heads. Indeed. I mean, goodness, Thomas, no one will find two more modest people like us. We ooze modesty, you know? <laughs> no, I think I'm the most humble. I should, I should get an award for being so humble. Indeed. <laughs> Let's get back I- into the story of Ibn Taymiyyah. So we left him in 1301. The Mongols are about to invade Syria again. Like before, Armenian Christians are among the ranks, but this time crusaders from Cyprus are also in the Mongol army. You know, this is a real a real bad situation. Ibn Taymiyyah, once again, he mounts the pulpit in Damascus, he preaches jihad again, and he writes the second of his three notorious anti-Mongol fatwas. But this time, he takes things a bit further. He travels to Cairo, the capital of the Mamluk Empire, and he meets with the Mamluk Sultan himself, Anasir Muhammad. The Sultan is only 16 years old, mind you. And according to the historical sources, he confronts the Sultan directly and he says this, If you turn away from Syria and its protection, we will raise up a Sultan for it who will care for it, who will protect it, and who will develop it securely. I find that really fascinating, Eamon, because if it's true, then it's an indication that Ibn Taymiyyah would have considered rebellion against the sitting ruler. Now, he never actually openly advocated anything like that, but Salafi jihadists today certainly do. And this is not in keeping with Sharia as it is classically understood, to rebel against a sitting ruler. In fact, Thomas, this particular incident between Ibn Taymiyyah and Sultan Nasr Muhammad is always taken as a clear evidential text from Ibn Taymiyyah's life that if the Sultan or the head of the state of Muslims were to abandon their duty of waging jihad against the enemy, then it is up to the scholars and the ordinary people to actually depose that sultan and remove him from power and install someone else in his place who will do the duty. In fact, I remember that Osama bin Laden in one of his Friday prayers in Afghanistan, when he was preaching, he said, this incident between Ibn Taymiyyah and Sultan Nasr Muhammad where he told him either you do your duty of jihad or we'll find someone else who will do, this proves that the older, outdated Sunni principle that there is no jihad without an imam, in other words, only the imam can sanction jihad, is outdated. In fact, Ibn Taymiyyah's position is that there is no imam without a jihad. Well, Ibn Taymiyyah's intervention in this case and his fatwas must have worked. So when a diplomatic mission from the Mongol leader Ghazan Khan arrived in Cairo that summer, the summer of 1301, demanding that the Mamluks surrender, they refuse. Not only did the Mamluks refuse the Mongols' demands, they in fact insulted them in the same way, with the same language that Ibn Taymiyyah used against them in his fatwas. They called them heretics. They called them zindiq, which means uh, a heretical uh, innovator. And so it showed that Ibn Taymiyyah's rhetoric and fatwas worked magic on the Mamluks. What follows this is a very exciting war, but remarkably, we have to just kind of briefly summarize it because it will take us away from exploring Ibn Taymiyyah himself. In the summer of 1302, local Syrian troops suddenly rise up against the Mongols and repel the invaders, the Mongol invaders, outside Aleppo. And this causes a kind of flurry of enthusiasm, a flurry of um, of morale amongst the Mamluks in, in Egypt, and they launch a big counterattack, which results in the Mamluks finally dislodging the last crusader outpost in the Levant, the Knights Templars sort of headquarters in Arwad. The following year, the Mongols invade again, 
Uh, it was the month of Ramadan. You can imagine Amon, Ibn Taymiyyah thinking, these people are not <laughs> Muslims. They're invading during Ramadan, a month of peace. And uh, this time he himself joins the army. He takes up arms, joins the Mamluk army to resist them. And the 20th of April that year, it's my birthday as it happens, <laughs> the Indeed. 20th of April that year, uh, the Mongols are repelled at the Battle of Marja Safar. And the Mamluks kind of, at least for a time, push them out. And the pressure that they'd been exerting upon the Mamluk Empire is relieved even further the following year when Ghazan Khan, their leader, dies. And this kind of brings to an end a chapter in Ibn Taymiyyah's life, a very important chapter where he was animated primarily by fighting the Mongols, resisting Mongol invasion, attacking the Christian uh, allies, the heretical allies of the Mongols who were attacking from without. And it opens the next chapter in his life where he focuses his attention not on outsiders, but on insiders, on the people that he felt from within the Mamluk Empire, from within the Sunni community, that were causing Islam to decay from within. Just like all radicals, Thomas, even after all the victories, military and otherwise, you would think that Ibn Taymiyyah would go home, you know, sit on his comfortable sofa, read some books, sip some pina colada, Damascus way, and, you know, just enjoy life, man. Um, however, radicals need enemies. And so in the absence of the Mongols attacking from outside, he focused his attention on the enemies inside the Mamluk Empire, particularly, you know, two groups of people who he believed corrupted the Mamluk Empire and opened it for outside invasions as a punishment from God for these, you know, for the transgressions of these two groups. These two groups are First, those who promote bogus philosophical doctrine, as far as he was concerned. And the second are the jurists, the Muslim scholars who were neglecting and were complacent in their application of Sharia laws and principles. That's great. And I want to focus on the second of those two. Those whom Ibn Taymiyyah believed were neglecting the law, the jurists. For the rest of his life, Ibn Taymiyyah would increasingly exercise ijtihad. We talked about this in the previous episode. Ijtihad, the independent exercise of juristic reasoning on original sources of revelation. The Quran, the Hadith, the, the Sunnah of the Prophet, and the early generations of Muslims, the Salaf. So Ibn Taymiyyah would increasingly take the initiative, would read the Quran, read the Hadith, and, and come to his own conclusions about them. This is called ijtihad. He thought that his fellow jurists had, had too slavishly mimicked sort of the precedents within their own schools of law. And he thought that that had created a, a, a stultified uh, legal environment that was not able to resist or respond to the challenges of the day. In fact, in his zeal, he would be accused, at least by his enemies, of taking the law into his own hands. He would order floggings uh, and other forms of corporal punishment, often outside the normal institutional sort of practices of the state. And, and that just gives you a sense of how serious he was. Thomas, we may even say that this almost amounts to vigilantism, you know, more or less like, you know, what some people you know, and you see them sometimes, not only in Muslim societies, but even when they live in within Muslim communities in Western societies, those who would go around, you know, and uh, order their uh, women to dress, you know, modestly. It, it really echo uh, Ibn Taymiyyah's stepping out of the bound, you know, within a society, ignoring, I'm not saying challenging, but ignoring state institutions that are supposed to rein him in and at the same time basically like you know tell him that it is not up to you to impose the law there's an example of this sort of vigilantism in a story by the historian ibn kathir who was a follower of ibn taymiyyah so we presumably this story is favorable to ibn taymiyyah's memory and this is a story that shows how ibn taymiyyah began attacking the other group that he accused of creating innovations and corruptions within islam namely the Sufis. So in, in this story, as related by Ibn Kathir, a Sufi sheikh arrived in Damascus wearing a big and luxurious garment, a kind of extraordinary, 
you know, looking like a wizard or something, but but making himself out to look like some kind of mystic incarnation of the divine or something, as some, some Sufis have done in history. Ibn Taymiyyah ordered his followers to cut the garment up. So they basically attacked this Sufi with knives. I don't know if they had scissors back then, but anyway, and they shredded the garment into pieces. Then they shaved his head because he had long hair, which uh, Ibn Taymiyyah thought was against the Sharia. They cut his fingernails, you know, because they were too long as far as Ibn Taymiyyah was concerned. His mustache, which was too long as well, was drooping down. They shaved it off. They trimmed it. You know, this sort of activity, it goes back to the Lebowski exegetical principle. You're not wrong. You're just an asshole to treat this <laughs> man like this. You know, maybe maybe the Sufi was corrupt, but still to order your followers to, you know, cut him up, and, you know, cut up his, his garment to, to shave off his head. It's a bit extreme. Well, not just a bit extreme. It was extreme. I, ha- I have some sympathy with people who want to expose charlatans especially charlatan gurus like you know who prey on uh, people's superstitions to you know to enrich themselves that's it so yeah i mean so clearly there were charlatans among the sufis and and yes as you say the sufis they did have some practices which for outsiders at least hearing about them might have caused concern but maybe the practices themselves were pretty pretty wacky so the, in arabic these practices are called sama and especially nazar so these these words mean hearing and seeing the nazar ceremonies, the seeing ceremonies in particular, are pretty pretty weird. I mean, they, they would involve often the stripping of a young boy to be naked in front of a circle of Sufis who would contemplate his naked body and they believe enter into ecstasy and union with God through that, that vision. You know, no judgment. You know, I'm, I'm not going to judge anyone. But it does sound, you know, you can imagine someone, especially of Ibn Taymiyyah's temperament, thinking, uh, what? <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, goodness. There is a Sufi obsession as far as Ibn Taymiyyah was concerned, you know, with young boys. It was unhealthy among the Sufis. And he, well, some Sufis, and he condemned it. And he believed that this sort, which in today's age, we call it pedophilia, was a disease that is eating at the heart of what was supposed to be a movement that is supposed to be divorcing itself from any worldly pleasure, whether it is a pleasure of the flesh or the pleasure of the food or the pleasure of, uh, you know, the skin in terms of like, you know, basically wearing the silk and the cotton and other like, you know, I mean, beautiful garments. I mean, how could you do that? In general, Ibn Taymiyyah believed that all heightened states of spiritual experience were satanic. He just didn't really trust that that sense, that feeling that these Sufis had in their ecstasy of union with God was authentic. But this, this indicates one of those infamous contradictions about Ibn Taymiyyah, because I wouldn't want anyone to think that Ibn Taymiyyah was strictly anti-Sufi. It's not true. You know, he was Sufi fact, himself. I know. In fact, he was a Sufi. Until the year 1311, until he was quite old, he had a Sufi as the, the spiritual guide of his group of scholars. This Sufi, his name was Imad al-Din al-Wasiti, he was both a Sufi sheikh and a Hanbali jurist. So just to make sure that everyone understands, we're not saying that there's this strict dividing line, Sufi, anti-Sufi, Hanbali, and the others. There was a mixture going on. And so as part of this kind of rich contradiction in Ibn Taymiyyah's character, it wasn't Sufism exactly that he opposed. It was excesses within Sufism as he saw them that he opposed. The irony... Uh, Thomas, is that Salafi jihadists, you know, especially in places like Bosnia, Afghanistan, and Chechnya, where there is a huge population of Sufis living there, Naqshbandis, Qadiris, Rifa'is, uh, you know, Jilanis, they looked down upon them. They believed that they were practicing shirk and heresy. I mean, they, they truly believed that this is not, not the righteous way. They believe the only true jihadists are the uh, you know, Salafi jihadists because these people are backward. They are cowards. They are just like, I mean, using Sufism to you know, shirk away their duty of jihad. But the reality wasn't you know, true. In fact, the Taliban were Sufis. I remember we were walking on one of the streets of Jalalabad and from a building, you know, on the second floor from the windows, we can see and we can hear a Sufi Hadra, 
you know, you know, like basically when they have the drums and the dancing and we see the men you know, of the Taliban with their uh, turbans and they were, you know, doing that Sufi dance in a circle and we were hearing the drums. For me, I like the sound of the drums. I mean, basically, it was so hypnotic. But for my fellow jihadists, it was, It's like, you know, they were saying, oh my God, what is this? This is awful. This is haram. This is shirk. This is heresy. They were so against it. However, all I see is that the vast majority of jihad activity and jihadism was actually undertaken by Sufis. In Afghanistan, it was the Taliban and the other jihad, uh, Mujahideen parties. In Chechnya, it was the Chechen Mujahideen who were mostly Sufis. In Bosnia, they were Sufis. So how on earth Al-Qaeda you know, would look down on their allies like this, I have no idea. I mean, you can't call, you call them heretics and then you are, they are your allies and they are your incubator community. They are your protectors. It was just like Ibn Taymiyyah, one of the contradictions that are contained within the jihadist movement. Now, Ibn Taymiyyah, in addition to kind of hating Sufi, let's say, ecstasy, Sufi extravagance in worship, Ibn Taymiyyah also had like basic theological problems with Sufism, especially the Sufism of an extremely important Sufi, historically speaking, possibly the most important one, the man who is known as the greatest sheikh. And this is Ibn Arabi. Uh, Ibn Arabi, who died in Damascus, he was an Andalusian from Spain, but he died in Damascus in 1240, so not too long before Ibn Taymiyyah was around. His tomb is still there in Damascus. I used to visit it regularly when I lived in Damascus because I love Ibn Arabi. My first interest in Islam was inspired by Ibn Arabi. My desire to learn the Arabic language was in, uh, implanted in me out of a desire to read Ibn Arabi in the original. Typical heretic. Typical heretic. <laughs> exactly. Just a Christian to the end. Uh, <laughs> now, Ibn Arabi's followers were not known for extravagant ceremonies for things like taking drugs, like some Sufis were accused of doing, for dancing. Ibn Arabi's followers were sober on the whole, but they were, in terms of their religious personality, their religious mentality, just totally opposite from Ibn Taymiyyah. So if we go and we take the, the Shahada, the Islamic Declaration of Faith, the first half of that declaration, la ilaha illallah, there is no God but God, there is no God but Allah. This can be interpreted in many ways, let's say in two basic ways. Ibn Taymiyyah interpreted it to mean there is only one proper object of worship, Allah. And in Ibn Taymiyyah's mind and heart, this was a way of loving God. God was an object of worship, divine worship. You loved him by obeying him. Do you think that's a fair way Amen of describing the Salafi interpretation of the Shahada? I think this is mainstream Islam. Okay, but people like Ibn Arabi and others, you know, on the less Salafi, less even sometimes, let's say, Sunni maximalist spectrum, but Muslims interpret it differently. Ibn Arabi would have interpreted that la ilaha illallah, there is no God but God, to mean something like everything in the end, in the final analysis, when you boil it down, everything is nothing other than God. He's telling his followers something about reality, that even though we can't see it, everything is actually God. Now, this is very provocative to someone of Ibn Taymiyyah's mentality, I would say, and certainly did provoke him the Ibn Arabi view known as Wahdat al-Wujud, the oneness of being, that all of creation is a mirror of the creator. This kind of way of being religious was antithetical to Ibn Taymiyyah's way. Oh, yes, because you remember the text, you know, from uh, you know, Ibn Arabi's writings when he said that when the Israelites worshipped the, the golden calf, they were actually, without knowing it, worshipping God. Well, we could say this about any pagans, any uh, people who worship the sun, the moon, the ancestors, you know, worship the trees, worship nature, you know. So at the end of the day, who's a believer and who's not? Like, you know, so from Ibn Taymiyyah's point of view, you have just absolved all humanity of any duty towards God. And that's it. Like, you know, I mean, whether you are aware of him or not, 
you are actually worshiping him. You could say it about a Christian, Amen. You could say yeah. it about a Christian who worships Jesus Christ. And in fact, Ibn Taymiyyah explicitly accuses Ibn Arabi and his followers by their idea of divine indwelling, of union with the of, with God, of God becoming one with the person, of being similar to Christianity, of being too Christian. So it's true with an Ibn Arabi view that the boundaries of where Islam starts and stops becomes blurred. Ibn Taymiyyah did not like blurred boundaries. Exactly. He is a uh, sober, rational thinker who basically said, no, 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 no. And then he accused Ibn Arabi of uh, heresy. Well, not just Ibn Arabi. Ibn Taymiyyah was going to go on to accuse a lot of people of heresy, and it was going to piss a lot of people off. In 1305, this led to a clash with Cairo, with the, the Mamluk capital. Ibn Taymiyyah writes two letters to Cairo, one to the chief Sufi sheikh of the Mamluk Empire, and the other to the spiritual director himself of the chief steward of the sultan. And he says that Ibn Arabi is a greater threat to Islam than the Mongols. In fact, Thomas, Ibn Taymiyyah went far further than that. He accused Ibn Arabi and his followers of causing the Mongol invasion with their heresy, that they are the ones who, with their spiritual deviancy, have weakened the foundations of the Muslim empire that the Mongols came and stormed the gates because of them. This is now the shrill, you know, screams of a Puritan mind that is abandoning reason and actually like an seeing enemies everywhere. Well, unsurprisingly, the recipients of these two letters from Ibn Taymiyyah were greatly offended. They took the letters to the chief judge in Cairo, uh, who was a Maliki, as it happens. And uh, the judge convinced the sultan to write to Damascus, to the governor there, and demand that Ibn Taymiyyah be put on trial. So now, for the first time, this is 1306, Ibn Taymiyyah is accused, is charged with um, a crime this is the first of several trials that Ibn Taymiyyah would be subject to for the rest of his life. You have to understand, Thomas, that in these trials, Ibn Taymiyyah's opponents found him extremely annoying because he was, you know, of course, always referring back to the texts. They were, of course, always referring to the jurists of their schools, whether they are Malikis or Hanafis or Shafi'is. But Ibn Taymiyyah, as you know, and as we have already said, is someone who wanted to follow, well, he was Hanbali, but who wanted to always go outside the box and follow the text and follow the literal interpretation of the Quran and Sunnah and the practices of the early generations as he saw fit. That used to infuriate his opponents. And nonetheless, in the end, these trials actually more or less improved and increased Ibn Taymiyyah's popularity because he was seen as a maverick. And goodness, people love mavericks. In the end, all of this landed Ibn Taymiyyah in jail. In April of uh, 1306, he was thrown into prison in Cairo, officially accused of various heretical doctrines. 18 months later, he was released when he agreed to sign a document confessing to orthodoxy. But immediately upon being released, he resumed his public attacks on Sufism. <laughs> he didn't wait any time. He started to attack Sufism again. And six months later, six months after being released from prison, he was banged up in prison again in Cairo. Well, there he was uh, in prison, converting prisoners to his cause. And all the while outside of prison, there was great political change happening in the Mamluk Empire. The Sultan, al-Nasir Muhammad, who had been a minor until now, enters into his majority. He turns 18. And there's, and then this leads to some explosive political wrangling between different factions who are trying to hold on to power. But they, they lose. He wins. The, the Sultan finally achieves full power. And little did Ibn Taymiyyah know, but Sultan Anasir Muhammad was a great fan of his. So as soon as he achieves full power, he orders Ibn Taymiyyah released from prison. Yes, Anasir Muhammad was a fan of Ibn Taymiyyah. And, and he offered him, actually, the chance to actually punish his enemies with death, in which Ibn Taymiyyah refuses immediately. He does not want any vengeance. He just wants to go home and preach what he believed to be the right 
uh, form of Islam. Yeah, we've been pretty hard on Ibn Taymiyyah, but clearly yeah. amongst the other qualities, there was a, a sweetie in there somewhere. <laughs> he, he didn't want to <laughs> condemn his enemies to death, but little did he know, right around the corner, his old enemy would return, new and improved, the Mongols. This time, they're Shia. Horror, horror. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this break. We're back, and so too are the Mongols. Just imagine that, Eamon. Ibn Taymiyyah thinking he's sitting pretty, fresh out of prison, ready to live his life, and there his old enemy, the Mongols, are back to bother him and the Mamluk Empire. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> so the backstory is, in 1309, Ghazan Khan's successor as Ilkhan and ruler, Oljetu Khan, I think I got that right, Oljetu Khan. Khan, he converts from Sunni to Shia Islam. Shame, absolute shame. This guy, Oljetu, he actually went through three conversions. I mean, he was originally a shamanist, and then after that, converted to Buddhism. Then he converted to Sunni Islam. Okay, that fits. But then the weirdest thing is that he converted then to Shia Islam. Yeah, what a hippie. <laughs> I don't think Ibn Taymiyyah was clearly not wrong to doubt the sincerity of these Mongol leaders' faith. Uh, and in fact, as a response to uh, Oljetu Khan's conversion to Shiism and the renewed threat from a newly Shia Mongol horde on the Mamluk Empire's borders. He wrote uh, a, a book that you know really is one of his most influential books called the Siyasa Shiraiya, Sharia-based politics or a, a law-guided politics, however you want to translate that title, the Siyasa Shiraiya, a book which has inspired a lot of Islamist political thought. Oh, indeed. I mean, the Siyasa Shiraiya is considered to be the book upon which a lot of later scholars and ideologues would base their framework of what a Islamic state, a proper Islamic state and a proper Islamic society should be governed. And this book is a particular example of how modern interpreters of Ibn Taymiyyah, especially radical ones, pick and choose quotes from his writings. Because in this book, Siyasa Shariya, Ibn Taymiyyah is actually very pragmatic at no point does he outline a systematic, comprehensive Islamist state system. And he makes it clear that everything must be done for the public good and for the avoidance of fitna, the avoidance of any social or civil unrest. And yet, at times, the book adopts certain maximalist views about politics and Islam. And some of his later interpreters have cherry-picked those quotes in order to build up totalitarian or totalizing political programs for themselves. Oljechu Khan, newly Shia, had already proved his ruthlessness uh, and was determined to consolidate the Ilkhanid Empire, which had gone through a period of civil unrest, of fragmentation after his brother's death. And the recent political instability inside the Mamluk Empire, which we mentioned in the previous part, uh, which brought the young Sultan Nasser al-Muhammad to the top of the, of the heap, that recent instability had convinced some Syrian emirs to defect from the sultan in Cairo and throw in their lot with the Ilkhanid emperor. Encouraged by this, at the end of the year 1312, Oljechu and his Mongol hordes invade Syria. And it is in this context, still in Cairo, but no longer in prison, that Ibn Taymiyyah pens his third anti-Mongol fatwa, the longest and the most notorious of his three anti-Mongol fatwas. In this fatwa, he calls the invaders not only unbelievers, but apostates, murtaddin. And of course, Thomas, a scholar of the caliber of Ibn Taymiyyah, when he brands a group of people, murtaddin, it would have significant legal ramifications for these people. When you fight against an army of apostates, which is exactly what the word murtaddin is, the plural for uh, murtad, which means apostates. When you fight against an army of apostates, you're not supposed to take prisoners. It's nothing short of total annihilation to anyone and for everyone who will fall into your hands. This is why 
this fatwa was considered to be harsh. But nonetheless, it wasn't a fatwa that seemed to be out of place among the mainstream Sunnis of that time because they were horrified by the fact that this time the threat seems to have encompassed not only the Mongols, who, of course, the, their memories are still fresh from the sack of Baghdad, because al Jato raised red banners written upon them, Ya Litharat al-Hussein, which means in Arabic, we will avenge Hussein. And what is so significant about this fatwa is the fact that there wasn't that much opposition from other mainstream uh, Muslim scholars against this fatwa. And I think it's because of the fact that they were all horrified of what's going to happen at the hands of this invading army. Yeah, I don't think any of his fellow clerics were um, defending the Mongol invasion. But this fatwa has really resonated down to the present. And in our own day, many Sunni Islamist groups use this fatwa especially to justify calling all Shia apostates and legitimizing violence against them because Ibn Taymiyyah takes such a strong line against the Shia conversion of the Mongols. Uh, indeed. And uh, of course, like, and I mean, this uh, particular fatwa is what uh, Abu Mus'ab al-Zarqawi and al-Qaeda in Iraq uh, at that time, you know, and the precursors of ISIS in Iraq would use in order to justify the indiscriminate attacks on Shia Muslims in Iraq. And of course, basically that led to uh, Shia reprisals from the other side, on Sunnis. Of course, it's not like, you know, rosy on the other side. Just to be uh, fair, I mean, both sides, you know, carry a lot of theological hatred for each other, enough to justify killing each other. Yeah, well, absolutely. Now, like before, Ibn Taymiyyah joins the Sultan's army and with all the Mamluk forces, marches out of Cairo early in the year 1313 on an expedition against the Mongols. And my goodness, don't I wish that I could say what happened was this amazing, epic clash. But in fact, the Mongols retreated without a fight. So, you know, the Mamluks must have really been a, quite a formidable force, honestly. You know, they're all, we're always painting the Mongols as this fearsome invading force, but the Mamluks must have given as good as they get because the Mongols uh, retreated without a fight. And in fact, this is the end of any great Mamluk-Mongol um, competition. Indeed. Uh, a few years later, a long-lasting peace treaty was signed between both sides in Aleppo. And from that point on, Ibn Taymiyyah no longer had to worry about any Mongol threats. He could just get back to his favorite <laughs> pastime of <laughs> writing strongly, strongly worded refutations of all his Sunni enemies whom he thought were destroying <laughs> Islam. You know, in, in 1314, he writes uh, his notorious refutation, you know, a big uh, essay against rationalist theology and Aristotelian philosophy. And according to modern scholars I've read, you know, Ibn Taymiyyah from that work demonstrates that he didn't really quite understand Aristotle as well as he might have thought he did. But nonetheless, he, he, he wrote that work against philosophy. He writes a book called The Correct Answer, The Longest Refutation of Christian Doctrine in the Islamic Tradition. Six volumes, can you believe it? I, sh I should read this, I think. <laughs> you know, it's called Al Jawab al-Masih, which means the correct answer to those who falsified Christ's religion. Uh, the funny thing is that it is six volumes and I read some of it. And between you and me, you know, basically, I mean, I was wondering, I don't know what Bible he read exactly in order for him to, he seemed to be reading from secondary sources. It doesn't seem Amen. to he had. Amen, my friend. Yeah. I, whenever I have a debate with a Muslim about, about religion, I wonder if the Muslim has read anything uh, that a Christian has ever written at all. Well, I did read the Bible, though. I did read I know. the Bible. Oh, no, not you. Yeah. Not you, dear friend. I know you are very well read into Christianity. So it, so he wrote that uh, that book against Christians in 1318. Two years later, he writes three notorious fatwas against an Alawite group called the Nuseris on the North Syrian coast who had revolted against the Mamluks. In those fatwas, he calls them apostates. He also calls the Druze apostates. Uh, he says they can be killed, their property seized. You know, as you know, Amen, in the Syrian civil war, these fatwas were invoked regularly of course. to justify uh, the struggle against the Assad regime, which is an Alawite dominated regime. 
Indeed. I mean, basically, sectarianism returned to Syria with force. And the irony is that some of these jihadist groups formed in 2012-2013, just a year or two after the breakout of the Syrian civil war, some of them would actually have a battalion within the group called the, you know, uh, the Battalion of Ibn Taymiyyah. So as to reinforce the fact that Ibn Taymiyyah is so ever-present. Why? Because they wanted to remind the Alawites the, to taunt them that, look, you know, we are, you know, going to attack you, you know, with the same man who 600 years ago uh, waged jihad against you. However, again, I, as usual, I have to caveat this. It's not also rosy at the Alawite side. The Alawites committed a lot of massacres also on the Sunnis in modern time as well. It's a shit show from all, from all directions, frankly. Absolutely. <laughs> There's a great story around, from around this time of Ibn Taymiyyah attending uh, an execution of a heretic. So a man accused of heresy by Ibn Taymiyyah and his followers, hauled before the courts, condemned to death. And just before the heretic was beheaded, Ibn Taymiyyah walked up to him and struck him across the face. You know, it's a, it's a sort of strong image of the kind of man Ibn Taymiyyah had become. He was determined to root out heresy uh, to, and, and to ensure that the Mamluk Empire was preserved from the, the, the dire effects of heresy. You know, and, and it brings to mind, you know, all of the heresy hunters in early modern Italy, early modern Spain, inquisitors, you know, all those sorts of people, witch burners. Uh, during the Reformation and Counter-Reformation. It was a similar age of unrest, of, of conflict, of chaos, of, of social, economic, civil disorder. And in, in the midst of it, a voice like Ibn Taymiyyah really can speak very persuasively, uh, smacking the heretics down and, and indeed cutting off their heads. You see, Thomas, this is the zeal that Ibn Taymiyyah possessed against irreligion. I've seen it on both sides of the sectarian divide in Islam. You know, you will see Shias and Alawites taking a Sunni and burying him alive, you know, because basically, like, I mean, they say you are a heretic, you are, you know, a, a infidel. And I see Sunnis taking a Shia and basically cutting him pieces to pieces or burning him alive because he is a heretic and an infidel. The two sides are engaged in the ugliest forms of violence. And this is when I realized that the ugliest forms of violence is what is practiced by zealot religious fanatics from any religion or sectarian persuasion. In the end, zealous religious fanatics would prove Ibn Taymiyyah's downfall. Uh, and I'm speaking specifically of his own followers. Ibn Taymiyyah had spent another couple of years in prison in the meantime for entering into theological disputes or legal disputes, really, with his fellow clerics. Uh, but then at the very end of his life, in 1326, a couple of incidents occurred outside of Damascus where followers of his, very close followers of, of his, acted in such, uh, let's say, um, inappropriate ways, <laughs> such radical ways that Ibn Taymiyyah couldn't escape censure for it. So one of his disciples in Cairo openly criticized a visitation to graves, the graves of holy men, the graves uh, of prophets, including the prophet Muhammad himself, which was becoming a common refrain uh, by Ibn Taymiyyah himself. He found what's called ziyara, visitation, visiting graves. He found it to become increasingly problematic because he felt that though it was okay to go to graves to pray for the dead man, he thought it was inappropriate to go and pray to the dead holy man or prophet, uh, which a lot of Muslims were doing. Uh, this sinned against his radical monotheism. Remember, all worship is directed only to God. There is There are no intermediaries at, at all. Of course, Thomas, this question will remain extremely divisive among Muslims all the way to the days of Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab in the Arabian Peninsula, who would come half a millennium later, and we will be covering his life story in following episodes. However, you see, for Ibn Taymiyyah, just like for his followers down the centuries, the question of, are the dead able to listen and able to help? This question is going to tear apart the Muslim world 
to the point where it is still resonating to this day. Well, as I say, one hot-headed disciple in Cairo openly criticized these grave visitations. He was arrested, beaten, banished from Cairo. He he went to join his master in Damascus. Then another disciple, equally hot-headed, this one in Jerusalem, he also preached against journeying simply to visit the graves of prophets or of, of Muslim holy people, including the grave of Abraham nearby, yeah. in nearby in nearby Hebron. This also got people very upset because, you know, the, the grave of Abraham, like the grave of the prophet uh, in Medina, were extremely popular sites of pilgrimage where many pious Muslims would come and, and offer their intercessory prayers, praying uh, for intercession from these holy people. So this was extremely uh, offensive to a lot of Muslims. So much so that that year, 1326, Ibn Taymiyyah's old clerical enemies in Damascus jumped into action. They accused him before the governor there, again, of spreading false teachings. And the governor, I think by this point he must have been sick to death of Ibn Taymiyyah, frankly, he appealed to the sultan in Cairo, Ibn Taymiyyah's old ally, the sultan al Nasser Muhammad. Now, the sultan had defended Taymiyyah 16 years earlier. Remember, he called him the most pious man he'd ever met. (laughs) Now, however, he just couldn't defend him any longer, and he turned against him. The sultan decreed that uh, Ibn Taymiyyah should be imprisoned again, and this time he revoked uh, Ibn Taymiyyah's right to issue fatwas. It became obvious to Sultan uh, Nasser Muhammad that Ibn Taymiyyah's fatwas and ideas and essays were trickling down through his disciples to the general public, to the ordinary people, and that it started to tear apart, you know, uh, neighbor against neighbor, family members against each other, mosque congregations split down the middle between those who support him, those who opposed him. He cannot have religious strife. He needs religious conformity to be more you know, prevalent in his society. He is already having to contend with outside enemies. He doesn't want to have his country split over a question of theology that doesn't seem to be that big. I mean, for the, for uh, Sultan Nasser Muhammad, this question was trivial, you know, absolutely trivial. But for zealots like Ibn Taymiyyah, no, 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 it is not trivial. Now, I salute Ibn Taymiyyah for actually, like, I mean, you know, thinking it's not trivial. And I, you know, salute his you know, uh, steadfastness in his faith. It was just the manner in which he preached it and the manner through which his disciples preached it. You're not wrong. You're just an asshole. Remember. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Remember, it's the Lebowski Lebowski, uh, exegetical (laughs) principle. Ibn Taymiyyah, still in Damascus, was imprisoned there. Several of his followers were also imprisoned, interrogated, whipped, one of his most notoriously hardline disciples, Ibn al-Qayyim, who was put in prison with him, was paraded around the city on a donkey. Uh, so there was a, a big turn by the elite against this whole movement, which would remain more or less the case as the movement you know, echoed down the centuries until men like Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab in the 18th century revived it in a big way. Ibn Taymiyyah, despite being in prison, he still spoke out loudly, defending himself. He, he published a work against the chief judge in Cairo, and he, he basically in that work said that his entire life had been a jihad, a jihad against both external and internal enemies. I find this quote weirdly moving. He said, jihad is the greatest blessing, but people don't know it. And more than anyone else, uh, Eamon, that quote reminds me of Sayyid Qutb. Yes. Who was also in prison, also wrote about jihad, and whom we'll also be covering over two episodes just, just down the line after our episodes on Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. But a lot of Salafi jihadists, a lot of Salafists in prison probably have that same feeling like, don't people understand that jihad is the greatest blessing? We must pursue it. Absolutely. And in fact, Thomas, this is why when I used to be in the camps in Afghanistan and Bosnia, I used to hear people say, Sheikh al-Islam and Sheikh al-Jihad, Ibn Taymiyyah, because for them, he's a, he is a man who fulfilled the two 
duties of jihad, the military jihad and the theological jihad. For them, they always quoted his most memorable quote ever when he was in prison and about to die. He said, what do my enemies think they are doing to me? My paradise is inside my heart. Wherever I go, it's with me. My imprisonment is solitude. My exile is tourism. And my death is martyrdom. Well, in 1328, after a short illness, Ibn Taymiyyah died in his Damascus prison cell. An eyewitness historian, writing not very long after, reported that 75,000 people lined the streets of Damascus for his funeral. I actually believe that figure. That sounds realistic, more realistic than the two million <laughs> that lined the streets of, uh, of Baghdad for Ahmed bin Hanbal. One final contradiction, the great enemy of the Sufis was buried in a Sufi graveyard. And that's it, Ibn Taymiyyah. I mean, what, what a man, what a legacy. And that's really the most important takeaway. This genius of, um, of righteous, anger, <laughs> this genius Indeed. of clear, uncompromising literalism and legal obedience, writing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of words over the course of his long life, his influence would go on, would outlast him, uh, well, as we've been saying, to the present day, not just within the Hanbali school of jurisprudence, but in fact, across all the four schools of jurisprudence, Muslims would find his writings and be inspired by them and would sort of keep the flame alive of the Ibn Taymiyyah way of understanding the religion all the way up until the 1730s, the 1740s, in a real backwards part of the Muslim world, the Nejd in the Central Arabian Peninsula, where a man would arise whom we're going to talk about beginning in our next episode, a man whose legacy is perhaps as notorious as Ibn Taymiyyah's. Who am I talking about, Ayman? Of course, it is Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, the Mujaddid, as they call him, the renewer. Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, founder of the so-called Wahhabis, the renewer of his age. Stay tuned, dear listener. We'll be back at you with another amazing story about another amazing and controversial Muslim thinker. A reminder that you can follow the show over on Facebook and Twitter at MH Conflicted. And for a deeper dive into all the subjects we talk about here on Conflicted, head over to Facebook and search Conflicted Podcast Discussion Group. There you will find other fans of the show engaging in heated debates, enlightening conversations, and just generally geeking out over Conflicted-related topics. Conflicted is a Message Heard production. This episode was produced and edited by Harry Stott. Sandra Ferrari is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Matt Huxley and Tom Biddle. <laughs>